Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Hi. Thank you. Okay. Um, we get started just a second. I want to announce one of the things on that um, sheet that you should have tattooed on your body or um, have on your refrigerator. Um, I don't have ones, but you know what I'm talking about, right? The summer deal. Um, in two weeks, you'll note that there is a parenting seminar coming. It's a two-week parenting seminar. There's two classes, seminars, discussions that, that are coming. And so um, I want to go ahead and ask just that you would notice that. Um, right now, the plan is for it to be downstairs. Um, that plan may have to change. If it does, we'll let everybody know. We'll send out emails and whatnot. Um, but that's coming. So if you're a parent or you want to be a parent or you're about to be a parent, um, that's, that will be um, a, a really good time to get together as parents um, to kind of set before us again what the Bible um, sets as the vision of what does it mean to be a father and a mother? What does it mean to raise a child um, in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Um, and, then, and then we're going to spend a lot of time the second week um, breaking into groups, talking about specific issues with regards to parenting. So that's coming. I want you to notice it. Um, you can notice everything else on there too, but that, that's coming in two weeks really, really soon. Um, and with that being said, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in this text. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would send your spirit now. Um, and send your spirit to, to do something that, that I can't do, that, that um, we can't do on our own, and that, that is to overcome enormous fear, deep-rooted fear. A fear that that we're not probably even aware of at at a conscious level. But fear that drives the decisions we make. Fear that that, that leads us ultimately to turn in on ourselves and and think only of ourselves. And and, and, and a a fear that that drives us to to be paralyzed in in moving forward in relationships or with jobs or with committing to a place or a people. Um, And so God, I pray that you would come and by your spirit make yourself huge tonight. That, that, God, we would see you as, uh, that this, this fear would not be overcome by thinking much of ourselves, but, God, this fear would be overcome by seeing and taking in your absolute sheer power and sovereignty. And that that wouldn't come as a crushing weight to us, God, but that would be a rock to stand on, or a rock to, to build a life on, and, and a rock on which we could 
savor bread and wine, a rock on which we could stand uh, to savor the work of our hands, to, to savor, savor our wife or our husband, um, to live life and to take it and to drink it deeply and to drink it as children. So God, come and, and move by your spirit. God, I pray that if there are those here tonight who do not believe, God, that you would call them to faith tonight, that they would be raised from the dead, that their hearts, uh, would be, their hearts of stone would be replaced with a heart of flesh, that they might believe uh, and be given life tonight. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. I want to tell two stories before we jump into the text. Um, when I was in college, a junior in college, I had a friend, and I'm going to call him John, but so you know his name wasn't John. Um, and John was, uh, he kind of ran around with the same group of guys that we did. He was a soccer player, um, which I discovered yesterday, soccer is a really fun sport to watch. Um, and, and he was a soccer player, he played for the college team, um, and, and lo and behold, it was getting close to, it was getting near the end of the first semester of 19... Um, 99, and, and um, so it was the spring semester, we were heading into summer, and, and John came to us and let all of his friends know one night that he would no longer be at school with us the following semester. Um, his father, who owned a plot of land in Missouri, don't let that discount the story too much, um, owned a plot, I love Missouri, my wife's from Missouri, so don't make fun of it, or laugh when I say things like that, <laughs> owned a plot of land in Missouri, um, was very aware of this new Phenomena going through the news that the world was going to come to a crashing halt. The financial markets were going to crash because someone forgot to program in the year 2000 into those computers. And so gasoline was going to run out, bombs were going to fall, um, people were going to go around with guns and machetes, and everything was going to come to a crashing halt. And so John's father had called John and said, look, you're not going back to school next semester. You're going to stay home with me on our plot of land, and we are going to prepare really prepare. And when I say prepare, I don't mean like have a couple extra bottles of water. I mean like build an underground fortress and arm themselves and have lots of canned food and have lots of bottled water and have lots of mace and surveillance equipment surrounding your... And I'm not exaggerating. You think I'm making this up? I can introduce you to the guy. And so John left school, went home, his father invested enormous sums of money creating a veritable Fort Knox in the middle of Missouri. So if you ever feel unsafe, come to me. I will give you an address. And you can go and stay there. But it raises a very interesting question. What do you do? How do you live once you realize that you don't have control? But once the myth that you control your life that death can be put off as long as you want. That tragedy can be put off. That cancer, it happens to other people. How do you live when control, when, when, when you realize that all that you thought was firm, all that you thought you had control of, begins to slip through your fingers and there's nothing left there? Maybe it's hard for you to relate to John and his father. Let me tell one more story. Um, I, I, and this story could be repeated literally seven times, maybe six, six. Um, I, I went and hung out with a guy at a, a, a pub in our neighborhood, um, and he had wanted to get together to talk about marriage specifically. He had been dating the same girl for two years, 
um, and he wanted to sit down and talk to me about how does he know if she's the one. And said, you've been dating her for two years. You should know if she's the one. And and, and as the the, the conversation progressed, I I began to realize that that this wasn't some, uh, he was having a crisis moment in his life. In the end, it can get kind of covered over with spiritual language, like, is this the person God has selected for me and highlighted with a spotlight in my life? So I'm supposed to marry this person. We can cover it over with all kinds of spiritual language, but in the end, what he's sitting there in that pub booth looking at me and saying is, I, I, I'm terrified to commit my life to this person. Absolutely terrified. I mean, what if I wake up and she's, two years from now, she's not the same person that I married? What if she becomes mean? What if she becomes ugly? What if she gets cancer? What if she doesn't like me? What if she realizes I'm a fake? What happens two years from now? What happens four years from now? Is this who I'm really going to be stuck with the rest of my life? Is this this really what I'm going to get locked into? He was paralyzed by this terror, this sudden realization that by committing himself at the level of marriage, by giving himself in covenant to this woman... He had no idea how to do that, not knowing how to control day three, day four, day five, year four, year six, year seven, year 37. That all of those years and the tragedies that may come, the joys that may come, the illnesses that may come, the the personality conflicts that may come, the dirty laundry on the floor that may come, the, 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 the... Poorly cooked meals that may come. The, the, the children that, that might not obey that might come. The children that might be, for, be, be birthed sick might come. And, and there was nothing he could do to control those days. And so as he sat across from me in that booth, I realized that what we were hitting at in this conversation was not just a putz. If you need to hear that, you can hear it. It was not just a putz, but a guy paralyzed by the sudden realization that marriage forced on him by this leap into this permanent relationship brought down on him the sudden awareness that he didn't control anything for 10 chapters Solomon has been hammering 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 that all of our attempts to control our life, to produce the outcomes that we want, to to make a difference in the world, to influence the world, to control the world, to even control our own simple, small lives. It's like trying to control vapor. It's like trying to shepherd wind and get it to go exactly where you want it to go. It just won't obey. And so he's been confronting us again and again and again, every single chapter from every angle that he can to tell us again and again and again, your thinking that your life is under your control, that your wealth is under your control, that that the direction and the course of your life is under your control. It's a myth. I mean, don't freak out. But you don't have any control. You might get hit by a car tomorrow. Cheer up. You might get cancer tomorrow. Rejoice. Death is coming. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. So Solomon, in his brilliance, inspired by God through his Holy Spirit, 
gets us to the point of the abyss. Saying you, you, you can't change anything. You can drink a little more wine or a little less wine. You, you, you can enjoy your marriage or not enjoy your marriage. You can pursue your, a wife or a husband. You, you can do certain things in your job. But at the end of the day, death is coming. And no one, not even your great-grandchildren, after a handful of years will remember your name. Do you want to build a fortress in the woods yet? Protect yourself. So how do we live? So Solomon tells us, right, in verse 1, and then everything else is an explanation of verse 1. So you can get verse 1, and then you've gotten the rest of the sermon. You can check out, start tweeting, playing Angry Birds, whatever. Get the first verse. Ready? Paul, are you ready? All the Pauls looked at me. It was awesome. Okay. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. And so he begins right here in verse 1 and says this, Cast your bread on the waters. What does that mean? Like if I have bread, do I throw it? Do I go find a river and throw it? What, what does this mean? Okay, bread is, is um, in Solomon's day, and it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of wealth. It's a symbol of kind of your whole life, everything you've earned. Um, th- this, this thing that you accumulate that gives you safety. It sometimes, um, in idolatrous situations, it gives you, it gives you identity. It, it gives you um, a future. It, it's what you use to buy wine, and it's what you use to buy more bread. It, it's what you use to, to kind of take hold of life and enjoy it. And... and, and Solomon recognizes right here in verse 1 that after these 10 chapters, the temptation you may, that all of us face right at this moment is to hold on to it. To take all that God has given us, to take our wealth, to take our um, resources of using our hands to work, to take our loves, to, to take everything that we have and to hold it. To build surveillance equipment around it. To dig out a fortress underground with an elaborate kitchen, bedrooms, and armed guards, and German shepherds. And and to protect everything. Because we've recognized that that life is a river. We can't steer the water. We can't make the water go where we want to go. Solomon's hammered into us again and again and again. God steers the water. He makes the, the water go where he wants it to go. And so we stand in the face of that, and the temptation that all of us face is to hold on to everything, to give yourself to nothing, to, to kind of um, live in this quasi-real quasi life, and never fully committing to anything, to anyone, to any place, just living, kind of taking pleasure as it comes, constantly afraid that, 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 that something's going to come and take it from you. Solomon's word, throw it in. Take your whole life and throw it in. You have no idea what calamity may come tomorrow. That's what I wanted to know. I hate this thing. You have no idea what trouble may strike you tomorrow. You have no idea what car may run over you tomorrow. You have no idea what the doctor is going to say to you at that appointment tomorrow. You have no idea um, what's going to happen in the stock market tomorrow or the real estate market tomorrow. You, you, you could lose everything So throw it all in. 
And then he goes on to spell it out as we work through the text. Verse 2, give a portion to seven, or even to eight. If you know not what disaster may happen on earth, and here, give, invest, take what is yours, take this life and spread it out. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. So spread your investments. Not just your financial investments, but your life. Spend it. Don't hold on to it. Don't put it in a barn. Someone's going to burn the barn down. Get it out. Invest your life into things, into people, into reality out there. Um, so, so give, live. Um, let, your, let your whole life be one of investing, uh, uh, of laying it out for others. Keep going. And, and, and he grounds why you should give, why you should cast, um, with, right here in verse 3. He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Why? Why do you cast it into the river? Why do you throw your life into the water? Why do you give, do you invest, do you lay out your life for others instead of living this this protected, sheltered thing? Essentially, you don't know anything. (laughs) Solomon's word is, you're stupid. And he doesn't mean that in an insulting way. He means that kind of in a, just a realistic sort of way. You and I are dumb. We don't even know how a baby becomes a baby. I mean, (laughs) if you don't know... You, don't ask me. Um, but once the baby's there, how does the baby get a soul? And how does that happen? We, we, um, we can't even look at a tree and know that, the, know that it's going to fall and know whether it's going to fall to the north or the south. Uh, one time um, when we were in grad school, we, a group from our church um, went to Detroit. Um, and uh, I almost said something rude about Detroit. God bless Detroit. And um, so we went to Detroit, and the reason we went to Detroit is a friend of our pastor's, um, a tree had been in his backyard and had fallen onto the house and literally ripped the house and, like, fell through the house. And so a good quarter of the house fell and collapsed into the yard. And you're looking at it, and it's like, why didn't you build your house on the other side? Because the tree, if it would have fallen the other direction it wouldn't have hit your house. If your house would have been on the other side of the tree, the tree wouldn't have hurt your house. And it's amazing, just a tree falling, what it'll do to a house. You ever seen a tree fall in a house? It's amazing. A tree. Nice shade tree. Boom, house gone. And and that was the stunning... There's no way to know. There's no way to predict. If if the tree falls to the north, it's going to lie on the north You can't know it. You can't predict it. You can't control it. You can't alter the forces of nature to make make it fall to the south instead of the north. And and this guy wishes it would have fallen to the south instead of the north. He had bad insurance. Solomon's word to us in this whole thing is, look, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And, and given the fact that you don't know whether the tree is going to fall over here on this group of people or it's going to fall over here on this group of people, throw yourself in. Cast your bread on the waters. 
give to seven or to eight. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't even know how a baby comes alive. You don't know where a tree is going to fall, whether it's going to fall to the north or to the south. And if you spend your life trying to watch the wind, trying to determine the course that that God is going to drive that wind. If you spend your life kind of sticking your finger up, trying to test and figure out um, exactly what God's going to do next, you'll never do anything. You'll be paralyzed with fear. You'll be sitting across from me at a pub asking really super spiritual questions whether or not this is the one or this is the right job or this is the right place to live or, or you'll just be constantly afraid. Is something going to blow up? Is, is this thing not going to be what I want it to be? Nope. It's not going to be what you want it to be. So do it. It'll be fun because you have no idea what it's going to be anyway. And if you go find some other woman, you have no idea what she's going to be like either. That's why it's fun. That's why marriage is fun, right? You wake up year two and you're like, who is this person? In a wonderful way. (laughs) You don't know anything. You can't predict the wind. You can't predict the clouds. If there's rain there, it's going to fall. If a tree falls to the north, it's going to fall to the north and it's going to lay there. Solomon's full of piercing, amazing insights. Like if a tree falls here, it's going to lay there. If it falls there, Luke's in trouble. It's going to land on him. You don't control anything. What, what else does he say about casting your bread upon the waters? I'm looking at verse 6. He says, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What does it mean to cast your bread on the waters? One, give yourself away, lay down your life, uh, give away your wealth, give away your loves, lay it down. Secondly, work hard. Uh, Work in the mornings and and work in the evenings. Put your hand to work because you have no idea what's going to prosper. That little stupid investment that you made, um, it might actually produce something amazing. Um, My mom, I'm not completely positive that this is a true story but my mom swears by it and she's been telling it since i was well as long as i can remember so we'll say six so so she's told the story again and again and again that she worked in an insurance office in louisville kentucky she was a um secretary i think there's a more proper word for it now administrative assistant so she kept calendars she did letters she did all that kind of thing And one day in this very, very small office on a hot summer day, she remembers it because it was a hot summer day, and the man walking in was wearing a white suit, white from top to bottom. And he comes in and he's trying to sell or get people to invest in a company that he's starting. A company that's going to sell fried chicken. I I don't claim absolute certainty for the veracity of the story, but if you go ask my mom, she will probably confirm, she'll definitely confirm it. Unless she's, anyway. Um, To which my mom scoffingly laughed, it's easy to fry chicken, why would anyone pay money for you to fry their chicken? Leave, we don't accept solicitors. So my mom kicked Colonel Sanders, or Colonel Sanders lookalike, out of the office. children are angry at her now. 
You have no idea what work of, what, what, what place in which you lay down your life and you give and you work with your hands and you, uh, you give yourself to the work set before you, the vocation set before you, the, 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 the place set before you. You have no idea what God may do with that thing. And I'm not at all preaching a sort of um, health and wealth sort of thing. I'm saying give yourself to whatever's before you. God may prosper the work of your hands. He may kill it. And not knowing those things, Solomon's word is don't just sit back and wait and watch the clouds and try to figure out, is this going to be it? Is this going to be it? Is this going to be it? Solomon's life is live. You will waste your life measuring the clouds, watching the financial markets, trying to find some predictable pattern in which to invest your life. You will waste your life um, in this relationship with this girl, simply trying to figure out, am I still going to like her five years from now? Is she going to be what I want? What, 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 you're going to waste your life trying to figure out, is this guy, I mean, what if, what if this is all, actually, I'm not going to say that. Girls, you should ask the question always, is this a sham? Um, guys, you're going <laughs> you're to waste your life trying to figure out how the clouds are moving, how the wind's blowing, what, what future um, this, this person might hold for you or this job might hold for you. Is there something better? Might there be something better? That, will, that, will, that question will plague you your whole life. Cast your bread on the waters. For you have no idea what may come next. And he keeps going. He says, look, life, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This is an amazing verse. None of you are looking at me with amazement. It's amazing. Because what he says here is, is in light of just casting your lot in, throwing your bread on the waters, he, he, he doesn't say, look, gaining wealth is sweet. So try to gain a lot of wealth. He, he doesn't say, a perfect marriage is sweet. So once you found it, so, so just cast yourself in, you'll find the perfect marriage. He, he doesn't say, um, raising perfect kids or driving the right car or living in the perfect city or having the right house in the right neighborhood at the right time, that these things are, are precious and sweet. Therefore, throw yourself in because you might get... No, he says light is sweet. In other words, you may get none of those things. Your marriage might be a wreck. Your kids may be full of shenanigans. I like that word. You, you, you may invest in some brilliant startup company and the owner take off with your money or it turns into a Ponzi scheme. I don't know what that is, but I like the word. You may get none of it, but just another day savoring the sweetness of the sun on your face. It's good enough reason to rejoice today. 
See, one of the things that gets misunderstood about Ecclesiastes is that um, we begin to, to listen to it and we read it and we begin to think that, that what Solomon's talking about and saying is that those joys, the sun on your face, the, the simple joy of working with your hands and laboring and, and producing some good, uh, the, the joy of, of having a wife and, and loving her and laying down your life for her, um, the joy of children coming, running in the morning, that you can begin, if, 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 you, if you begin to read it the wrong way, you begin to say, well, that's all vapor. It's not real. It's vanity. That's not Solomon's point. The sun is a great good. The, the, the sense of joy, real joy and awe that you feel. Um, that I, I, I felt Saturday, we, we drove up to Echo Lake and, and just driving into the mountains or, or even getting out of the car and walking um, on that trail with the tourists. Um, and looking up at Mount Evans, the snow on it, that's a real joy. That's a, a real thing to take in, to behold. Solomon's point is not that those things aren't real, that they're not to be enjoyed, they're not to be savored. The, the joy I had yesterday, first experience ever, walking into Fado, 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 Something Irish. Walking in um, during the uh, Champions League championship final. And it's packed to the gills with Europeans who live in Denver. Chanting and singing and dancing and fighting and drinking beer. And I just literally, I walked in and I just took a step back and just took it all in. It was a beautiful thing. Stunning. That's a real joy. That's a gift from God. I know I'm getting corny and cheesy, whatever, I don't care. It's beautiful. Solomon's point is not to say those things aren't real, they're vanity, they're vapor, therefore look away from those things. Not at all. He's saying that that's a real joy, but the moment you try to take hold of them, the moment you try to make that the ultimate thing, if I can just get enough afternoons at Fado watching soccer, it's lame. If I can just get enough time in the mountains beholding natural beauty, then I'll be fulfilled if I can just control it. If I can just avoid death another day and get this. The moment you do that, it slips through your fingers. That's Solomon's point. So even if the house falls through, even if you lose your job, you lose everything you invested in, um, your marriage is just hard. It's just hard. Solomon says it's good to have another day with sunlight on your face. That in and of itself is sweet. Therefore, savor every day. Savor it all. Because if you hold your bread, if you, if you protect yourself and shield yourself from all the dangers out there, you'll never really savor any of it. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. You're going to be judged someday. Rejoice! I thought it was funny. 
Remove vexation and worry and concern from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vapor. What's he saying here? I think the key is to look at this phrase, walk in the ways of your heart. And then right before it, he says, O man, in your youth, and rejoice, O man, in your youth, and rejoice in letting your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And this is the part of the sermon where we're coming close to being in danger of this becoming a graduation speech. <laughs> um, but I'll quote C.S. Lewis, and that'll make it more sermonic. <laughs> uh, C.S. Lewis um, spent his life fighting one battle. It, it was the battle for, for what he called quiddity. Uh, quiddity was a word he made up. It was from the word quid. You would know that from quid pro quo. Because all of you use that phrase often. Um, The the, the idea, though, the the word literally meant whatness. The the quiddity was whatness. The whatness of a thing. The whatness of the world. He he spent his entire life fighting one battle, saying that the the whatness of reality is real. So when you look at a tree, don't just see the tree. See green and brown and something that's breathed into existence by God. Savor it. When you see mountains, don't dismiss them. Don't, don't look past them. Savor them. See them in their grandeur and their bigness and their unmovableness. And, and, and the fact that the Bible calls it that the righteousness of God is like a mighty mountain. So when you see this big, unmovable thing, it hurts to climb. Me, anyway. See it as real. That when you feel awe in in the face of that mountain, that's not to say that that awe is the most real thing. It's to say that that awe should point you out to what is real. Which is kind of one of the the reasons he said there has to be a God. Because we feel that we're made for something bigger and grander and more glorious to behold it, to see it. We thirst for it. Therefore, it must be real and it must be God. He spent his whole life saying, uh, fighting the battle to say that reality is real, that we're not just kind of this enclosed uh, ball of emotions, just constantly responding to things, that what's real is in here. And he said, no, what's real is not in here, it's out there. So go see it, behold it, enjoy it, savor it, write poems about it, write stories about it, sing about it. Solomon's word to us is this. Let the, the subtle movings of your heart in response to the creation and the goods that God has made and surrounded you with, let it cheer you. Follow it. See it. Savor it. If God gives you one more year, rejoice in it. Even if all he gives you is is the sun on your face. It's like literally you spent the year chained to a log in the sun on a beach. And your head was pivoted so all you could see was the sun rejoice take cheer because of two things death is coming and judgment is coming a day of reckoning is coming so if God gives you one more day at least enjoy the sun that day if he gives you a day with sunlight and a, and a good husband, 
enjoy him. If he gives you one more day with light and a good job, like when will you get paid? Enjoy it. In other words, let the whatness of, of what God has made and surrounded us with, let it be a real joy to you. Savor it. Throw yourself into it. Don't live in this constant state of worry, of protection, of concern, of trying to build up a hedge and putting surveillance cameras out and making sure the little things that you have don't get stolen from you. They're going to get stolen. And if it's not a thief, if it's not cancer, maybe it's just old age, you're going to die. And you can spend your life fighting that, denying that. You you can spend your life denying the, the, the... the sheer weightiness of reality that there is a God that you will stand before, that you will give an account to. You can spend your life denying that. You can live life like he is there and he is good. Now, there's a few things that keep us from that. And so I want to spend the last few minutes talking about those things. Because I think all of us have that tendency that we look out, we finally discover the fact that, that we're standing on the edge of a river. That was for dramatic effect. <laughs> and we've got bread. And you can call that bread um, your commitment to a job and a vocation. You can call bread commitment to a place or, or another person or, 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 or just money. <laughs> and we want, the, the temptation is we stand on the edge is to hold on to it. To, to hold out for something better, to... to, to Keep it as our, to ourselves. Where did that come from? Um, a guy named Peter Lightheart wrote a, a book called Solomon Among the Postmoderns. It's a, it's a really, really good book. It's about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's been really, really helpful to me. It's not really a commentary as much as it's him taking the book of Ecclesiastes and looking out at the world and letting them kind of resonate together and, and fight. And, and what, what, what Lightheart observes and what a bunch of people have observed uh, about Solomon's um, letter here, to, or whatever it is, proverb thing, book, um, about Proverbs, uh, about, about Ecclesiastes, not Proverbs, um, is that perhaps for one of the first times in history, society has come to the place, it's kind of come up to the edge, and everybody's acknowledging, finally acknowledging what Solomon is trying to say at the, at the bare essence, that we don't have control, that death is coming, that we don't control everything. And, and the way he narrates kind of this story is he says that, look, Um, prior to our day, there was this thing called modernity. And the fundamental idea behind modernity was this sense of control. I can control the world. It was this massive project that that we began several hundred years ago in which we were going to lasso the world. We were going to control the forces of nature. We were going to control the human mind. Uh, We were going to end death. We were going to conquer hurricanes. We were going to take control of the world with science and with raw technology. And, and somewhere in the last 30 years, we realized that that project failed miserably. I'll let you think about that for a second. <clears throat> we can't even control microphones. <clears throat> and, and it was a sudden realization that no matter what we do, people are going to still fly planes into buildings. Earthquakes are going to happen in the middle of the ocean and tsunamis are going to crash into cities and, and, and cancer is going to grow. 
and, and new diseases are going to start and kill lots and lots of people. Um, that no matter what we do, no matter what amazing technological innovations we have, we can't stop it. And, and so this sudden realization has kind of sprung up on society. And I say sudden because it's happened really in the last 30, 40, 50 most people say it started somewhere um, in, in popular culture in the 1960s. This sudden awareness that, that we don't control what's out there. And so what most people have done is to crawl inside of here. And so we, losing this, this myth that we control the world, instead of giving ourselves to this great project of taking over the the earth and taking over creation, we started Facebook. And we started Instagram, where we can post really hip, overexposed photos again and again and again. And when your friends see them, they'll think you're cool. And you can sculpt the perfect I like music list on Facebook. So that when people come to your Facebook page, they'll know you're with it. You know those cool bands that those other people don't know. Or we can make movies of ourselves. And we can star in our own life page. In other words, instead of looking out there to try to control, instead of responding to the, to the sudden realization of death, that, wow, there must be a God who controls all things, that, that, that will judge the earth, that I'm going to submit my life to. Instead, we said, okay, if I can't control out there, I'm going to control the one thing I can, and that's others' perception of me. I'm going to be really cool. And, I'm gonna, and it's not just on Facebook and Twitter. Some of you are tweeting about Twitter. It happens, um, it's the guys who buy all the new gear every season. The new Patagonia jacket, the, 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 the new North Face clothes, the, the, the attempt to constantly, and, and they've, I mean, if they're like me, <laughs> they've, they can count on one hand the number of mountains they've been on. And, and yet, I've got a really cool backpack. Why? I can't control what happens out there. I can't even make it up a mountain. But I can make you think that I'm the kind of guy who climbs mountains on the weekends. Oh yeah, I'm that guy. I mean, I observed this afternoon three <clears throat> Subaru Outbacks, two of them tan, in the Starbucks parking lot in a matter of two hours. Everyone moves to Colorado and they buy a Subaru. And if you have a Subaru, this is... Don't feel condemned. Why? Because if you're in Colorado, you're supposed to drive a Subaru. So you can look like the kind of people that go splashing through rivers and um, drive your car up on rocks over ravines and, and, and do that sort of thing, right? So I can't control what's out there. I can't control this microphone. I can't control earthquakes. I can't keep myself from getting cancer. So the one thing I am going to control is my self-perception, my Facebook page, what people, what, what pithy saying can I come up with on Twitter about Parkburger? I went to Parkburger and it was hip, and I'm hip. And I tweeted about it. And then it got retweeted and quoted on Facebook. And people sent me comments and they liked it. They put like, 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 like. <laughs> and I get fur affirmed. 
and I feel important, and I feel cool, and I feel liked, and I feel important, and I feel like I'm in control. At least of me. I can't stop a tsunami, but I can make people like me. You know what the problem is? We're spending our whole lives creating a self that's not real. Which means we're, we're spending our entire lives holding on to our bread and then taking a paintbrush and painting it, holding it up, showing it to people. Look at the me I made. Look at the music person I like. Don't you like me? Come on, hit like. Click like, please. I got an email from insurance person this week begging me to go to their Facebook page and push like. Kind of destroys the whole concept. Am I supposed to spontaneously like you? But we beg people to like us. We want to have the right job so that we look the, the, the right way. We, we wear the right clothes. We, we want to structure our lives in such a way that we still maintain the myth of control. And it may not be controlling out there. It's simply trying to control what's right here. Cast your bread on the waters. Amazing article came out today. Um, in the op-ed of the New York Times, by Jonathan Franzen. And I would um, encourage all of you to go read it. It's an amazing op-ed about this, this inability to love because we're so concerned with being liked. This inability to give ourselves to anything fully because we're so concerned with with how we're perceived or the self that we're trying to paint or protecting the little bit of bread that we have. Cast your bread on the waters. My plea with you, I think it's Solomon's plea for you, look away from yourself. Look away from small breads. (laughs) Look away from small bits of control. Look away from your vain attempts to control your life. And and don't live with absolute emptiness. No, look to the one who rules all things. Look to the one who spoke and continues to speak those mountains into existence. Look away from yourself, from your small petty coloring lines on the outside of your bread. Instead, look to the one who who holds all things together by the word of his power. Look away from yourself and look to the one who appoints a time and a place to be born and to die for war and for peace, for for joy and for pain, for sorrow and for goodness. Um, Look away from yourself. Look away from your your petty joy of of kind of glorifying yourself and being liked. And instead, look to the one who is and then throw your lot in. Give yourself to a life that can be savored, every single drop of it, both the painful parts and the gloriously um, pleasurable parts, the hard work of your hands and the glory of a wedding day. 
Learn to walk out in the morning and savor the sunlight on your face again because there is a God who is there. Death is coming. He rules with absolute sovereignty. And then here's the the beautiful piece that we have that Solomon only had hints at. The judgment that's coming. For all those who cling to Jesus, it's already happened. So that the infinite power of this sovereign God is being wielded over and over and over and over again for your joy. So I plead with you tonight. Look away from yourself. Look to the one who is sovereign, who rules all things. And in response, lay down your life. Judgment is coming. So cling to Jesus, hide in him, and then be freed to build a life that's rich and good. And knows that the God of the universe who rules all things, who holds all things by the word of his power, is for you. Even in the midst of pain. Even when your bread goes away and it never finds its way back. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, I plead that you would come, that you would carry these words of Solomon and, and that you would cause us not to believe in ourselves, not to, not to reignite the great modern project thinking if we can just work hard enough, we can control our lives or we can control even something bigger. Um, God, I, I pray that you would cause us to look away from ourselves and look to you, to, to find in you the rock on which we can build our life the rock on which every single wave can crash against, that everything in our life can be taken from us, and yet we stand on you free with maybe one more day. So God, let us be those who cast our bread in the waters, who give ourselves to this life that you've given us, that that savor the sunlight on our face, that that, that work hard both in the morning and in the night with our hands, that that take all the gifts that you've given us and give them back to you and with joy joy and in song and in a life that savors every single drop that you pour for us. And let this come, not because we look to ourselves, not because we have some sort of carefree attitude, but God, because we have found a rock on which to stand and and, and found a cross on which our judgment has fallen. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.